Well, good uh, morning, good afternoon, good evening, brothers and sisters, wherever you are. Peace of Christ be with you. Uh, this is Didact, and this is Didactic Mind, episode, what are we up to now? 94, I think. Didactic Mind, episode 94, Breaking Banderastan. A very warm welcome to all of my longtime listeners. Very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers. Those of you who are listening on Podbean, thank you very much for your continued patronage and support. And for those of you who have accessed uh, this podcast through my site, once again, my gratitude to you for continuing to pay attention to my long-winded ramblings. For the next hour or so, I want to talk about the current war in Ukraine. And I know this isn't uh, easy listening. It's not pleasant for me to talk about. Believe me, this is one of the hardest podcasts I've ever had to record. Um, I'm not going to you know, talk about trivial things tonight, and I'm not going to waste your time pitching endorsements to you. If you, if you want to check out the, the links below, then feel free. I'd appreciate it, but um, understand that this is about much more than just free speech or about um, helping out a brother. This is about truth in a swamp of lies, an ocean of lies. And for that reason, among others, this is a very difficult podcast to record because in all honesty, we're dealing with uh, a pandemic of lies and stupidity. And uh, let me try to adjust the volume here a bit. Uh, okay, that should take care of it, right. So uh, the input thing was uh, probably a bit off. So in terms of, you know, um, in, uh, yeah, right, there we go. Okay, so in, in terms of what I want to talk about tonight, the war in Ukraine has been severely and blatantly misrepresented on every possible front by the Western media. And I have never been so angry and so uh, outright full of hatred for anything related to the West as I am now. I feel this, this great sense of heaviness and depression on me. The, the last three days, I've been just miserable uh, because I'm watching Russians and Ukrainians killing each other over something that they didn't start. These are two nations that should never have been at war. They are brothers and sisters fighting each other in the fields and in the streets of a beautiful country that should have enjoyed the fruits of peace. And it is because of the Western elites that we are in this situation now. This is unforgivable. This is utterly and totally unforgivable. What they have done to Ukraine and what they have done to Russia is absolutely unforgivable. And I'm going to try to break down over you know, the next roughly hour or so what I think of the war and where the lies are and where some of the truth is. Because bear in mind that by the time you listen to this, the facts on the ground will have changed dramatically. Okay, uh, Everything I'm going to tell you uh, 
in terms of the military situation on the ground is based on information that I have right now, based on things that I have seen and read and processed on my own. And I'm getting my news and my data from a number of sources outside of the mainstream media. Don't pay attention to what the Clown News Network says. Don't pay attention to what the Bolshevik Broadcasting Corporation says. Don't even pay attention to what Faux News has to say, because for all, like the only person worth paying attention to on Faux News right now is Tucker Carlson. And even he, even base Tucker, has managed to get a number of things badly wrong over the last few days, last two, three days. I have seen more stupidity and more moronic statements emanating out of Tucker's show in the last three days than, well, two days, because, you know, Thursday, Friday, basically those two shows, than I have ever seen in like three years of watching his show or clips from his show and then full length shows because I don't, I, I go to BitChute or Odyssey to get the full length, um, actually, episodes. So, the only person who said anything on Tucker's show that is worth paying attention to is Colonel Doug McGregor, uh, U.S. Army retired. He's the only man, per, woman or person, you know, anybody, uh, well, him and Tulsi Gabbard, Representative Tulsi Gabbard, they're the only two people who had anything useful to say about anything on that show. Every other person, whether it's Eric Prince from Blackwater or Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, for whom I have immense respect, by the way. I think he's one of the greatest historians alive. To Britt Hume, to, you know, any other talking head. There's some talking head from the Ukrainian American Society or something or the other on from yesterday's episode. Every single one of them has said something unbelievably stupid. Um, and usually more than one thing unbelievably stupid. So I'm going to try to break down for you some thoughts and some ideas for you to, to, to mull over. And keep in mind, I don't have an axe to grind on either side. I am unabashedly pro-Russian, that's true. But understand that that's not because I necessarily like Putin or because I like the Russian government. I really like the Russian people. I really deeply love the Russian people. I love their culture. I love their language. I love them as a group of people. They have treated me incredibly kindly. They have been incredibly hospitable to me, incredibly decent to me. I have nothing but good things to say about the Russian people. Even as I acknowledge their faults, I will tell you that as someone who has lived in Russia, someone who speaks some of the language, not very well, uh, and as someone who knows a lot of Russians, these are some of the best people in the world. And I have absolutely nothing against Ukrainians at all. None. Uh, you know, I have dated Ukrainians, well, a Ukrainian, sort of. Uh, I have been around a lot of Ukrainians. A good friend of mine lives in Ukraine. Uh, a, you know, a, a woman that I knew in college all the way back then, you know, because I'm so ancient. I am very much a card carrying member of the ye oldie, grumpy oldie farts club. Um, you know, have been for many years now. Uh, I know Ukrainians and I respect them. I like them. I care about them. I want them to be safe. I want them to be happy. So I don't have anything against either side, right? This is not coming from a place of taking one country's side or another. This comes from watching a horrific war unfolding and wishing to God that it would stop. But I am sick and tired of seeing the lies spread by the Western media 
and I am sick and tired of seeing on LinkedIn or Facebook or well, I don't use Facebook or any of the other various social media sites a whole bunch of garbage spewed by people who don't know what's going on. So in this podcast, I will try to break down for you some of the background, some of the current events, and some of the potential future developments. And I leave it to you to decide whether I'm right or not. Uh, Again, much of what I will tell you will be dated by within an hour of me releasing this because of how fast things are moving on the ground. But bear in mind that I am getting my sources from the uh, Gen Slava Z Telegram channel which has been posting basically live clips and, and, and uh, videos taken from people's smartphones in Ukraine, on the ground, into Telegram itself. So this is like as live as it gets almost, other than being on the ground and live streaming. This is not some third-hand hornalist or prostitute account of what's happening. This is not some talking head who thoroughly deserves to be drone-striked out of existence, you know, standing on a building and yammering on about how horrible the Russians are. This is live on-the-ground footage, okay? So, let's start with some background about this whole conflict. People would have you believe that Putin attacked uh, unilaterally, and that this is a wanton act of unprovoked aggression by Russia. That's bullshit. That's absolute bullshit. The reason Russia attacked is very easy to understand. And all you have to do to understand it is to read the full transcript of his eight and a half minute thereabouts address when he announced the military, special military operation in Ukraine on the more on, well, the, yeah, the morning basically of February 24th. So February 23rd, February 23rd, Dien Zashitnika Otyechestva pardon my Russian, uh, Defender of the Fatherland Day. February 24th, early hours of the morning, Putin announces special operations in Ukraine to to demilitarize and denazify the country. Why those words? Well, why denazify? Why, Why does that matter? To understand this, you have to go back all the way to 2010, to the contested election between uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Yanukovych, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, and Yulia Tymoshenko. Yanukovych and Tymoshenko represented two very different sides of the country. Tymoshenko represented the Western sort of two thirds thereabouts that are ethnically Ukrainian, Polish, and um, other nationalities kind of mixed in. That side of the country is very, very pro-EU. It wants to join the European Union. It wants to join NATO. It believes in globalism and is very much fond of or a big fan of the idea of joining into these globalist institutions. uh, What's his name? Uh, Yanukovych, on the other hand, captured the majority of the vote, the vast majority of the vote, in the eastern third or thereabouts, the east and the south of Ukraine, which is heavily Russian-speaking and ethnically Russian. In those parts of the country, you don't speak Ukrainian, you speak Russian. And this inc- this is to include places like Odessa, Mariupol, uh, Kharkov, Kiev, even Kiev to some extent. 
and farther east, you know, towards uh, uh, effectively um, Lugansk and Donetsk. I'm going to use Russian pronunciation for all of the names because I speak Russian, again, badly, as anybody can tell when I said Dien Zashitnika Otechestva. Obviously, my, my Russian is not that good. So, если русские люди слушают меня, пожалуйста, извините меня, я только говорю на русском очень плохо и медленно, конечно. Я не практикую, я не каждый день практикую мой русский. So, at any rate, if you look at that election in 2010, it created a balance of power between the two halves of the country, but it was not it was not an ideal balance of power by any means. And uh, Yanukovych was quite pro-EU, but he wasn't interested in breaking off ties with Russia either. And the price to join the EU became so high in terms of reforms and IMF packages and special favors and uh, kind of reforms that he had to put through that he rejected them. At which point, the Obama administration got involved in late 2013. Victoria Nuland and Anthony Blinken and the CIA engineered a coup in Ukraine. This is all, you know, we now know all of this to be true. The CIA backed the Euromaidan revolution, the supposed revolution of dignity. It was nothing of the sort. We now know that ultra-nationalists in the Maidan Square, put up snipers on the roofs of those buildings and began the bloodshed in January of 2014 that turned a peaceful series of protests into a violent, anarchic bloodshed festival of horror and death. They fired on their own people because they were paid to do so by the CIA and by the State Department. And the result was a massive, uh, you know, series of, of bloody reprisals across the entire country. Armed militias began persecuting and shooting and beating and terrorizing native Russians all across Ukraine. The infamous Azov Battalion, or Azov Brigade, I forget exactly what they're called, but Azov uh, something or other, reconstituted itself. Now, this is a group that was identified as essentially Nazi sympathizers and Nazi collaborators Whoops. during what the Russians know of as the Great Patriotic War. That is where this whole idea of denazification comes from, because... The ultra-nationalists in Ukraine have been parading around for the last eight years with, uh, as paramilitary brigades, with government support, by the way, they have a pretty tight relationship with the government, under both Petro Poroshenko and uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. They've done this in plain sight. This is not news, and this is not Russian propaganda. You can find an article in National Interest, which uh, I'll try to link in the description box, where these paramilitary groups are described in some detail, their funding sources are described, and their uh, brutality is described. The result of this uh, was a 
sharp polarization of opinion within Ukraine between native Ukrainians and native Russians, ethnic Russians, I should say, if ethnic Ukrainians and ethnic Russians. And for those of you who think that the two are indistinguishable, that's not true at all. Russians and Ukrainians are distinct peoples. They are, they are tied together by bonds of history and blood and faith and tradition and language, well, sort of, um, in terms of language, but they are distinct peoples. The entire idea of Russia started with uh, Prince Rurik, a Viking prince who landed in what is today Novgorod um, in 862, and then he founded, he, he married uh, Princess Anna of the Kievan Rus, and that is, the, that is historically dated as kind of the start of the modern states of Russia, states, plural, including Ukraine. And uh, he founded Kiev as his capital city. So this is how far back the two peoples date, but they are distinct peoples. Now, in linguistic terms, Russian and Ukrainian are very different languages. Russian is understandable for people who speak Ukrainian, but actually the, the, the linguistic difference between the two is almost 50%. Ukrainian is closer to Polish than it is to Russian, actually. Bulgarian is closer, linguistically speaking, to Russian than Ukrainian is. Uh, Ukrainian is a very odd language and you know, some very odd structures. So when the Euromaidan revolution took place in 2014, the, the ethnic Russians in the country could see the writing on the wall. And they started to break away. They started to agitate to break away. In Crimea, where Russia has had a military base presence since 1954, Sevastopol, basically. Sevastopol is a city founded in the 19th, the 18th century by a Scot employed by the Russians. So it has always been Russian territory. Crimea was essentially part of a Khanate, the Crimean Khanate. So it was a, you know, a Crimean Tatar territory which then was ceded to the Russians by a treaty agreement. Then in 1954, you know, it was Russian all the way through that time. In 1954, it was ceded by a special ukase of the Soviet Presidium to Ukraine, to the Ukrainian SSR to be more specific, under the agreement that Russia would maintain a military base in Sevastopol and have access to the Black Sea through that city and therefore would have a warm water port. So it was like a Russian enclave, kind of similar to what Kaliningrad is in German, well, what, what is today, you know, German, Poland, whatever you want to call it. Um, it used to be either German or Polish, but it's actually today, it's Russian. Kaliningrad is a special Russian enclave. So Russia has always maintained a military presence on the Crimean Peninsula. The Crimeans voted in April of 2014 to rejoin Russia, overwhelmingly. I mean, like 90 plus percent. International monitors decried the vote. They said it's rigged. It's, you know, you've got a military presence. Of course, they're going to vote for Russia. Well, okay. But how does that make sense, given that in 1991, the Soviet Union agreed to peaceably disband and Russia peacefully allowed all of the other original client states of the Warsaw Pact to go free? and then allowed all of what they call the SNG, the, uh, what, in, in, what in English is the Commonwealth of Independent States, to break apart and, and go their own way and form their own countries. Russia has a history of peacefully allowing ethnicities and peoples and nations to go away from Russia. Has never had a problem with that. 
historically speaking. So that's exactly what they did. And the people who stayed within Russia, you know, the Bashkiris, the, uh, the, the, what's it called? The, the people in the Far East in, uh, Khabarovsk, the, uh, the Dagestanis, the Chechens. Well, the Chechens, I mean, they have to be conquered, fine. But the Dagestanis, for instance, they all stayed voluntarily. They stayed as part, as, as kind of republics subordinate to Russia. So Russia has never had a problem with letting peoples go peaceably and has done so in the past. So where this logic comes from, I don't know. But the Russians annexed Crimea in 2014, and at the same time, the Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics uh, essentially voted to break away. These are the two regions in the east that are most heavily Russian-speaking. And they basically said, no, we, we don't want to be part of Ukraine anymore. We want to leave. Uh, it was at that point that the Ukrainian paramilitaries got involved and started uh, a campaign of essentially intimidation, terror, and genocide in that part of the world, which has gone almost entirely unreported by the Western media. The, the Russians have tried to highlight this to the EU, to the European Court of Justice, or whatever it's called, the, the International Court of something or the other. I mean, all these international bodies and basically tried to say, Look, you've got a huge problem here. I mean, you've got a refugee crisis, you've got a humanitarian crisis, and nobody wanted to do jack shit about it. Why? Because, it, oh, it, they're just Russians. Oh, it's just Russians getting killed. Well, no, it's human beings dying. And for eight years, the Russians were the only people trying to help. They were the only people trying to provide aid and support to people under massive persecution from neo-Nazis, actual neo-Nazis, in the Ukrainian government, supported by the Ukrainian government, I should say. Neo-Nazi paramilitary brigades attacked them over and over and over again for eight years. So that brings us up to the present day. Now, here we have President Zelensky, who is a Russian Jew by birth and by ethnicity. His native language is actually Russian, although if I listen to him speak Russian, I'm like, what the hell is that? Because he's got a very strange accent. He's got a Ukrainian-type accent. But I, I find it very hard to listen to his, his Russian because my ear is trained to listen to real Russian speakers. And by the way, if you've ever met a Russian who and, and tried to learn the language, they will insist on very correct pronunciation. If you don't pronounce something correctly, they'll make you do it over and over again. It's not like when you speak... In English, whether you're speaking a Cockney accent or a Scottish accent or a Welsh accent or a Brummie accent or an American accent, although Americans don't speak English, you can still sort of understand what people are saying because it's a common language with, you know, more or less adenoids, effectively, um, is, is, is the key ingredient. There's a, a great joke about how the English and the Americans are two people separated by a common language. Well, that's, uh, you know, George Bernard Shaw, I think, was the one who said that, I think. Uh, Russian doesn't have that distinction. If you can tell where somebody's from listening to him in Russian, I mean, you, you, I, can, I can tell, for instance, if someone is from uh, one of the Crimean or Caucasian republics based on how he speaks Russian. Um, and I can tell when somebody is from, like, Siberia based on how he speaks Russian. I can tell when somebody's from Bashkortostan uh, if he speaks Russian a certain way. And, you know, I've, I've, I've listened to enough people speak Russian. At any rate, Zelensky is elected as president, and he comes in, and the first thing that he does is promise tighter integration with the EU, and he starts agitating for NATO membership for Ukraine. 
Now, this was about the dumbest thing possible because in 1991, actually in 1989, when uh, Gorbachev started his Perestroika and Glasnost um, approach, reform and liberation and so on, uh, he did so under the explicit understanding, though not written down, with the American architects of the end of the Cold War that there would be no NATO expansion to the East, not one inch further. In 1999, in the same year as American bombs were raining down on Belgrade and Americans were bombing Christian Serbs to defend Muslim Kosovars, the Russian people had to watch as the former client states, like Poland, joined NATO. That was a humiliation on top of a humiliation. And the Russians have never forgotten that. They've never forgotten that you cannot trust an American administration to keep its word. They, they have since, in, a, in the 25 years or so since that happened, they have come to understand that America cannot be trusted as an ally and a partner. It is the most treacherous ally the world has ever seen, and that's not an exaggeration. Every single country that has allied with America has been betrayed, including Britain, repeatedly. So to argue that America is somehow in the right to expand NATO eastwards is ridiculous. It's, it's not even close to accurate. The Russians had a clear understanding, and the fatal mistake was that it was never written down in a treaty. But they had a clear understanding from the Americans that NATO would not expand eastwards. And now here we are in 2021-22, actually as early as 2017, with NATO inching ever further eastward. Every single satellite state that the USSR had, every single satellite buffer that Russia has being absorbed into the North Atlantic Treaty Organization with the Article 5 Mutual Defense Clause in operation, right? So... What you're seeing from a Russian's point of view is your entire Western border becoming slowly more and more hostile. And now you have Ukraine, where Charles XII of Sweden attacked and was crushed at Boltava, uh, being looking to be absorbed into NATO. That cannot be permitted. But the Western powers have been agitating for a war with Russia for, oh, about 20 years now roughly speaking. They have never forgiven Russia for its refusal to bow down under Putin to the global homo pedocracy, to the Pharisaitanist ideology, to the neoliberal so-called rules-based world order. They have never forgiven Russia for that. And they have been agitating for open war with Russia during that entire time. What we have today is a direct result of 20 years of Western provocations and miscalculations and stupidity. Because Russia kept saying over and over and over and over and over and over again, do not expand NATO eastwards. Do not absorb these countries into NATO. Well, NATO kept doing it. Inevitably, Russia said, okay, you cross this red line, we're going to strike back. Blaming Russia for invading Ukraine now is a lot like, as I wrote before, surrounding a giant grizzly bear with bloodhounds and, and wolves yapping and you know, trying to rip it apart into a corner. And then you get pissed off with the bear when it starts 
striking back and disemboweling and decapitating the hounds. Why are you surprised? This is what you provoked it into. So what we have today is an absolutely horrendous situation that the Western elites are entirely responsible for creating. They were the ones who backed Russia into a corner from which there was no escape. They were the ones who alienated Russia with bombing campaigns against innocent Serbs. They were the ones who tried to cut Russia off financially and economically over and over again. They were the ones who ignored Russia's entirely reasonable and legitimate requests to have its Western borders respected with a neutral buffer zone. They were the ones who ignored Russian requests for security. It's like basically the United States saying, you know, to, or basically it's like China, if, if you want a, a more exact analogy. If you, if China were to establish military bases in Mexico today, do you think the United States would hesitate for even a moment to send marine divisions in to wipe them out? Of course they wouldn't. It's that same analogy. That's the, that's the kind of thing that Russia is dealing with here. Now, has Russia made mistakes? Absolutely. Uh, the, when the LNR and DP, DNR declared independent, or declared their intention to break away from Ukraine, Moscow did not recognize them as independent states and decided instead to seek a diplomatic solution with Kiev in the form of the Minsk agreements, which were brokered by uh, the Germans and the French uh, and uh, the, Belarus the Belarusians uh, under, under uh, Lukashenko. And the idea was that Kiev would give the LNR and DNR regions more autonomy and more freedoms and would not persecute them and would not try to impose the Ukrainian language upon them. Well, Kiev didn't live up to a single one of its promises. On top of which, what was M Moscow's other major mistake? Trusting the West. Russia trusted the West to keep its word, and the West has never kept its word. The USA in particular has never kept its word. Under four different presidential administrations, it has repeatedly lied to and betrayed the Russian people. Over and over again. Doesn't matter whether you're talking about Bush II, Obama, even the God Emperor, for all of his good graces and, and his wisdom, kept supplying arms and ammunition to Ukraine, which was really stupid because essentially all, because Ukraine is such a corrupt, you know, um, country, it, essentially the arms ends up being sold on the black market. So uh, the Americans thought they were doing a good thing. They really weren't. It was a really dumb move. They were supplying arms and, and, and armaments to a corrupt Eastern European country that couldn't manage itself. I mean, there is a reason why Ukraine's economy has shrunk like 40% from what it was in 1991, whereas Russia's has grown dramatically since that same time. The two countries could not be, could not have had different outcome, more different outcomes, really. Even though Ukraine had all of these advantages. It has all these natural resources. It has ports. It has metallurgy. It has uh, agriculture. It has technology. It has aircraft, mining. It has all of these huge advantages. Excuse me. And it could not use any of them because it is so corrupt and so badly run. The Ukrainians can't manage a country for crap. The Russians barely can. The Ukrainians can't manage a country for crap. I mean, as insulting as that sounds, it's the truth. Okay. What else did the Russians do wrong? Well, they should have acted a lot sooner. They should have acted to deter Western aggression a lot sooner. But in reality, believe it or not, 
and this is this probably sounds hard to digest given what what all's happened. Putin is actually committed to diplomacy and uses force only as a last resort. Look at the war in Georgia in 2008. What happened then? Mikhail Saakashvili came to power in the what was it, the Purple or Violet Revolution? I forget what. Some color revolution, uh, again, most likely backed by the CIA. He instituted a series of pogroms, in, you know, persecutions against ethnic Russians in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. And then when the Russians invaded to stop the persecution, stop the bloodshed, he ran around complaining and squealing, saying, no, 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 this wasn't, you know, the Russians are invading, they're, they're at fault. An EU commission comes along a few months later after the war has ended and finds pins the blame squarely on him. And that's exactly the pattern that is repeated over and over again. The same thing happened here. If you look back at the actual events on the ground, forget what the, forget what the prostitutes are saying. Again, every single one of them deserves to be hanged at this point. I am so sick and tired of these, these idiots, these, these, these absolute traitorous liars and charlatans getting away with, you know, utter nonsense. I'm so sick and tired of it. I don't even bother hiding my sentiments anymore in public. I am so tired of this crap. Forget what they're saying on the Daily Fail or the New York Slimes or the, the, the Washington Compost or the Clown News Network or the Bolshevik Broadcasting Corporation. Forget it. Just just ignore them because they're, they're, they will lie through their front and back teeth. If you look at what happened the day that Russia recognized the LNR and DNR, um, the, the Luganskaya Narodnaya Respublika and the Donetskaya Narodnaya Respublika, when, when Putin recognized those two as essentially sovereign states, he gave the Ukrainians and their paramilitary organizations more specifically a clear ultimatum. Back off, do not attack our compatriots effectively, uh, do not attack these, these areas. They continue to attack. This is one thing that, again, the Western news organizations have refused to report. They won't report on these things because it doesn't fit the narrative. But they continue to engage in shelling, artillery strikes, and um, an open warfare against civilians and against uh, the LNR, the LDNR militias, effectively, because they don't have standing armies. Uh, they, they're not anywhere near populous, populous enough. So... They engaged in open, unrestricted warfare against civilians, and the Russians finally said, okay, that's it, enough, we're going in. Now that brings us up to the present time. The Russians have now been fighting in Ukraine for three days. If you read, again, the Hornalists and the prostitutes and what they're saying, you'll be under the impression that the offensive in Russia is going extremely badly and they're incurring thousands of casualties and um, extreme, uh, e extreme losses in, in men, equipment, and vehicles. Well, I got bad news for those people who believe that sort of stuff. Most of it is fake. Here's the reality. Right now, the Russians have pushed into Kharkov from the northeast. They have probably in just about encircled Mariupol in the southeast. The uh, LNR and DNR forces are pushing westwards, north and west, from the line of control, the line of contact, rather, 
with Ukrainian forces. A number of Ukrainian border guards and armed forces personnel have laid down arms and joined the LNR and DNR, the LDNR forces. I'll just use that because it's shorter. Uh, Russian artillery has bombarded Ukraine from within Moldova. Russian troops are massing at Brest, so there's a considerable fear that they will invade Poland, which I, I just don't see that happening. I, I really don't, I don't see that happening at all. Um, we're also getting reports right now of major Russian assaults on Russian, uh, on Ukrainian cities throughout the Northeast. And, uh, it looks like they're going to take Kharkov very soon. They've pretty much encircled Kiev. They've already taken Berdyansk airport in the southeast. They have secured uh, Chernobyl. Now, there was a lot of speculation about, well, the Russians are attacking Chernobyl. Why are they attacking Chernobyl? The reason they're attacking Chernobyl is very simple. They want to make sure it's secured so that no one can do anything stupid. There is footage now out there from uh, Ria Novosti which shows that the situation has now been peacefully resolved and Russian special forces are working with Ukrainian guards and security personnel to manage and watch over the containment shell set up around uh, the damaged reactors at Chernobyl. Chernobyl is effectively secure and Russian and Ukrainian people are working together to make sure it stays that way. So the narrative that you're hearing about the Russians going hog wild and slaughtering people is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. There is video out there of Russian special forces, Spetsnaz, speaking in Russian to the Ukrainian people and saying, our fight is not with you. Do not take up arms against us. If you do not attack us, we will not harm you. Go back to your houses, stay there and stay safe. We're not here to fight you. They're addressing the Ukrainian people directly. They're saying to the Ukrainian troops, uh, do not engage us and we will not engage you. We are not here as your enemies. We are here against your government. There are rumors so far unconfirmed, and again, this news is probably going to be old by the time you hear it, that Zelensky has fled Kiev and is actually in Lvov in the west, near the western border, hiding out and making videos from there. I don't know if that's true. I... I, I no confirmation at all, so I, I can't tell you. The nature of the disinformation campaign against Russia is such that if you look at, uh, or if you looked earlier on today, at various news feeds from the West, you would have seen some interesting bits of news that have since been proven totally false. There was this uh, you know, article floating around in various news sites. I saw it on the Daily Fail um, not too long ago concerning the so-called ghost of Kiev, this MiG-29 fighter pilot who had somehow downed like six Russian aircraft, six Russian fighter jets, and uh, two to five Russian choppers, something like that. So, I mean, you know, damn good pilot, right? Really skilled, really capable. He was out there fighting the good fight. You know, yay, ura, fantastic. Turns out, if you look at the footage, supposedly, of him flying his jet and downing all these jets, uh, shooting these fighters out of the sky, turns out it's actually uh, in-game footage from a video game. Very realistic looking, but it's video game footage. So it wasn't real at all. 
it was disinformation spread by the Ukrainians that went viral and there is no such thing. In reality, as far as I can tell, and again, I could be wrong, but as far as I can tell, the Ukrainians don't have any air forces that are effective anymore. There has been a lot of footage shown of a destroyed convoy um, in, I think, the south of the country. Uh, let me let me double check that. I, I remember sending a friend of mine some info about it. But basically, if you look at uh, if you look at this 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 info about um, about the convoy, it turns out that it was it was not um, Ukrainian. It was not Russian at all. It was it was Ukrainian. Uh, trucks that had been destroyed and it was it was really really bad I mean the National Guard of Ukraine um, was just bombed out of existence it was a bunch of MAZ uh, Bogdan trucks which are only used in Ukrainian armed formations there are also videos of people launching man pads uh, you know portable anti-aircraft uh, missiles against MiG-29s. Well, MiG-29s aren't heavily used by the Russian Air Force anymore. So the only people operating MiG-29s in that area probably are the Ukrainians. There are also reports, it looks like, of friendly fire, seemingly, you know, friendly, quote-unquote, fire, between Ukrainian armed forces and uh, Ukrainian paramilitaries. So there seems to be some fratricide going on within Ukraine's biggest cities, particularly within Kiev. The Russians paused their offensive yesterday. They didn't stop because they'd run out of supplies or munitions or because they were exhausted or anything like that or because they were taking too many casualties. They stopped because the president, Putin, ordered them to halt and cease fire while negotiations took place between Kiev and Moscow. Um, Moscow offered talks with Kiev in Minsk. And Lukashenko said, I will do whatever is necessary to, to host discussions with you and I want to find a peaceful resolution to this crisis. Okay, great. Kiev responded, Zelensky responded by saying, well, let's have the talks in, in Poland, in Warsaw. And Moscow said, okay, and we'll think about it. And then suddenly Kiev cut off all contact. So what happened there? Why did that happen? Well, the fact that the fake administration in the U.S. promised something like $600 million of aid to Ukraine, military aid, probably had something to do with it. I think Zelensky thinks he can fight on and he can carry on with Western support. I don't know where he gets that idea from. Because right now, if you look at the disposition of Russian forces, they've taken Mariupol. Oh, they've, they haven't taken it, excuse me. They've surrounded more or less Mariupol. There is video that I saw um, just now, raw footage of people trying to leave Mariupol and Ukrainian armed forces grabbing people, throwing them out of cars and holding them at gunpoint and shooting at people trying to get out of the city. So the Ukrainians are getting a little chaotic and desperate. You remember that, um, that, that whole story about the heroes of Snake Island, uh, which is a, a little island fortification off the coast of Odessa? Supposedly, 13 very brave Ukrainian soldiers had held out the outpost and they basically um, told the, the Russians standing off the coast, go F yourselves. Uh, when the Russians asked them to surrender, they said, go F yourselves in Russian. And I won't repeat that here because I might have a, a Russian listener or two. <laughs> and the word in Russian is actually a lot ruder than the word in English. So 
what they said and what they did were two very different things. The Ukrainians had this big celebration, this big to-do about how these brave 13 souls died to defend their motherland, etc. Well, subsequent video emerged on this Genslava Z channel uh, on Telegram showing that there weren't 13 soldiers on that island. There were 82 soldiers, and most of them, if not all of them, were captured alive, and they're being very well treated. This video of them in a Russian sort of POW area, they're in full uniform. They've had their weapons taken from them, but they haven't been harmed. They haven't been beaten. They're receiving a packet of food, you know, a big box of food and a big bottle of water, and they're being put on a bus. When they're, when they're wounded, you know, they're, they're, when they have Ukrainian wounded, they're treated medically by Russian personnel. There's no abuse of them. There's no uh, there's no mistreatment, no maltreatment. Ukrainians who have defected to the Russian side have said, we're being treated okay. There's, like, there's nothing wrong here. So, you know, you could argue that I'm a Russian plant or spy or whatever. Fine. I mean, I'm getting my information from different sources than you. Okay. Pick and choose what you want to believe. I mean, you have to make up your own mind. What I'm telling you is that based on the video evidence that I'm seeing coming out of Ukraine, from people on the ground. The situation is not dire for the Russians. The situation is really dire for the Ukrainians. The Russians just blew up a dam that the Ukrainians built to cut off fresh water supplies from Crimea. That's gone now. They, they, they destroyed it. And now fresh water is flowing back into Crimea as it always should have been. The Russians are fighting hard for Kharkov. They are fighting in um, to establish a beachhead presence in uh, in and around Kiev, and it looks like they're 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 launching repeated attacks to take and hold a major military airbase there. And if you look at the way that they've positioned themselves, they're basically striking from the southwest of Kiev, uh, you know, around the Odessa region and straight up, you know, north from Kherson, from Kherson, uh, Odessa, and straight north into Kiev itself. They're striking from the southeast of Kiev via Mariupol and the LDNR line. They're striking from the north going through Belarus and driving down south. So Kiev will essentially be encircled on at least three, maybe four fronts. What they're doing is they're trying to establish what the Russians call katyol, cauldron. The German speakers among you may recognize it as der Kessel, the kettle. And if you recognize that phrase, that's because it comes from the greatest tank battle in human history, Kursk, where the Germans were encircled and destroyed. If that happens, God help Kiev, because here's, here's how a siege is going to go down. And Brothers, seriously, hope and pray that this does not happen. I beg you, pray for this not to happen. Pray, God, with all your might, that a siege of Kiev does not take place. Because here's what the laws of war say a siege will look like. When you besiege a city like Kiev, you surround it on all sides. You leave one route of escape open. You let out all of the women and children and all of the boys under the age of 12. No weapons, 
No personal possessions, except what they can carry with them. Every one of them is searched. Every one of them is allowed to go out on foot. Anyone, any male over the age of 12 is forced to stay behind. You then offer those men an ultimatum. Surrender and live, or refuse and die. If they refuse, you surround the city, you cut off power and water, and you starve them to death. In a big city like Kiev, without fresh water supplies, and without significant amounts of fresh food available within the city itself, they'll start starving within five to seven days. They'll start eating rats and cats very soon after that. Within a week, they'll be weakened and hungry and thirsty and desperate. At that point, you send in the army and you kill everyone left inside. This is the way siege warfare works under the laws of war. It is horrifying. It is brutal. But it is, in its own strange way, humane. And that's not me saying this. If you've ever read uh, Lieutenant Colonel Tom Cratman's A Desert Called Peace, you'll know where I get this from. That's essentially the tactic that he shows in that book, based on the laws of war. That's exactly how this goes. It is the most horrifying, desperate kind of fighting imaginable. And it would make it would bring back memories of places like Stalingrad and Leningrad. Pray God that that doesn't happen. Because nobody wants that. The Russian people don't want it. The Ukrainian people really don't want it. Nobody wants to see that. Let us hope that the leaders in Kiev and Moscow can find an accommodation and agreement to make it to avoid that possibility. Because the alternative is too horrifying to think about. The Russians cannot sustain this war for all that long, let's be honest. I mean, their economy is about $1.7 trillion in size, and it's about the same as South Korea's, effectively. They cannot sustain this level of combat operations for more than a couple of weeks. We know that. They'll be lucky if they can sustain it for a, you know, a month, maximum, at this pace, but I don't think it's going to be necessary. The, the, at the speed they're moving, with the success that they've had, with the beatings that they've inflicted on the Ukrainian military, which is effectively, as far as I can tell, crippled as a fighting force right now. There is nothing much that they that anyone can do to stop them from advancing on Kiev. I mean, they're they're trying very hard to avoid civilian casualties. Actually, if you look at video from Ukraine of them driving past civilians who are like trying to stand in their way and assortment throw stones at them and 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 trying to provoke them and trying to slow them down. The Russians aren't just mowing them down or shooting them. They're actually going out of their way not to harm the civilians. I'm not saying that civilians aren't getting killed. Of course they are. They're dying. And it's horrible. But the Russians aren't carrying out full-fledged massacres the way that you, know, you would believe that they are if you're listening to Western propaganda. But the Russians can't keep doing this for very long, and they shouldn't. They need to find a way to resolve this crisis peacefully. As for escalation, well, I mentioned earlier that Russian troops are massing at Brest. If you know where Brest is, it's 
close to the border between Belarus and Poland. And it's not far away from the, where the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed in 1917, which is kind of an important um, turning point in history. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Poland is next? No, I don't think so. I don't believe that the Russians are interested in fighting a war on multiple fronts. They don't have the economy or the ability to support it. But there, is, there are ways where this could very easily, this, this whole fuster clock could get way out of hand very, very quickly. If the Americans insist on flying in aid to Ukraine, the Russians will be absolutely within their rights to shoot down those aircraft. And, you know, that's just, that's, that's real talk. No one in his right mind should send an American aircraft into Ukrainian airspace when the Russians control that airspace with the intent of resupplying the Ukrainians. That's, it's a terrible idea. The only way this ends is if the Ukrainians agree to disband their paramilitaries and hold them accountable for what they've done, charge them with war crimes, and refuse to join NATO ever again, declare themselves essentially neutral, which, by the way, is what their constitution supposedly requires them to be, a neutral power between Russia and the West. I think in terms of long-term consequences, a lot of the Baltic and FSU states in the, the sort of satellite territories of Russia are going to realize in an awfully big hurry that that joining NATO would be a terrible idea. I think also the Russians aren't actually going to test the Article 5 provisions. I don't believe, and I could be wrong, you know, I, it could be tomorrow we'll wake up and find that the Russians have actually attacked through Brest into Poland. It's like, oh shit, well, what do we do now? Because that is World War Three. But if that happens, well, it's one thing to have Article 5 written down on a piece of paper. It's quite another thing to enforce it. And one thing that we know about the Western powers is that they are toothless in the face of um, calls to cut, to fish or cut bait, effectively. There's a huge difference between Russian red lines and Western red lines. When you cross a Russian red line, you get your hand chewed off or your foot shot off, basically. But it's not like they didn't tell you what they were going to do. I mean, that's, that's a characteristic of the Russian people. They will tell you when you're crossing a line and they will tell you what, you're go what they're going to do to you. And if you insist on carrying on, then don't blame them when they react. You know, it's like you provoke them. It's, just, it's that simple. With the West, it's a whole different story. I mean, the West is big on talking, is very short on actually doing. And what the Russians and the Chinese and everyone else can see very clearly after the the, the catastrophe of the Afghanistan withdrawal, and now the utter failure of American so-called diplomacy to find a solution over NATO expansion into the East, what we can see very clearly is that the West is toothless and powerless. So if Russia or somebody else tried to test Article 5 of the NATO charter, I don't think the West would back it up. And I... I don't want to test it, though. I, I, don't, I don't want to see that test happen, because if it does, you know, the US, the UK, Poland, Germany, Italy, France, everybody gets embroiled straight into a shooting war. Uh, actually, France doesn't. I think they're out of NATO. I'm pretty sure they're out of NATO. Um, but Germany would. 
And by the way, Germany, uh, their military is a joke. I mean, really, their, their military is an utter joke. Their, their military was considered to be about the size of Ukraine's, and like 150,000, 200,000, something like that, um, personnel. But if you actually read up on the German military, they have no strength whatsoever. They, their troops train with broomsticks painted black in place of rifles, which is uh, like, seriously, I mean, this is, a, this is the country where Heckler and Koch, Heckler, Heckler and Koch comes from. I believe. Um, let me go look that up, actually. Heckler and Koch. I'm pretty sure they're German. Uh, yeah, they are. So Heckler and Koch is a German rifle and, and, and handgun manufacturing company. And the German army trains, trains with freaking broomsticks. I mean, that tells you a lot. You know, it's, that's, that's pretty pathetic. Um, they have very good tanks. I mean, the, the Leopard 2 tank is an excellent MBT. But they don't have any, anywhere near not, anywhere near enough of them, and they can't fight a land-based war. I mean, they don't have the stomach for it. So, what's going to happen if uh, Article Five actually has to be cashed in? I think at that point all bets are off. It's like it, it's one of those moments where you know, if China invades Taiwan, does the U.S. really send in its Pacific fleet to defend? If it does. All China has to do is send its carriers scurrying away, and that's it. It's over. The U.S. empire in the Pacific collapses. It's the same with NATO's Article 5. If it gets tested and nothing happens, it's over. NATO collapses. But I don't think anybody actually wants to test that. As for Russia itself, the sanctions against Russia are going to hurt a lot of good people. They're already facing a, a difficult life, particularly since the pandemic. Life in Russia has always been harsh. It's just gotten a lot harsher. They'll find a way to overcome all of them. I have no doubt. I mean, Russia has spent the last 10 years insulating itself from Western sanctions because it knows the West cannot be trusted. But we never should have gotten to this point. The West never should have gotten to the point where Russia became its mortal enemy. Russia and the West don't necessarily have to be best friends. But the two cultures are similar enough and they share enough history and enough common touch points that they always should have been, if nothing else, at least friendly neighbors. That's all that was necessary. But the West under US imperialistic hegemony pushed the issue of NATO and Western, which is to say American dominance, to the point where Russia feels alienated, ignored, and humiliated over and over again. It never should have gotten to this point. And here we are, 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, with a man in charge in Russia who understands one thing, and understands it well, weakness. And he sees weakness in the United States and in the West, and he knows it is his time to capitalize on it. So here we are today, Every life lost in this war between Russia and Ukraine is entirely due to Western actions. The West has blood on its hands, and we are living through the direct results of this madness. And I think I'll have to wrap up there because if I keep going, I'm going to keep spitting bile, and uh, that's quite difficult to clean off my computer screen, I can tell you that. But um, I hope you learned something. I hope you gain some value out of this. Do not pay attention to the hornalists. Do not pay attention to the prostitutes. 
Um, I hope that they get their comeuppance very soon because of the lies they've been spreading. But we'll see. At any rate, uh, like, comment, share, and subscribe if you enjoyed this podcast. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 94, Breaking Banderistan. And I am Didact, signing off.